0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Ramachandra Guha, the famed Indian historian and columnist, returns to Yale to discuss his latest book, India After Gandhi. Mr. Guha spoke at the Macmillan Center. This is a very special occasion for me, uh, because I've written what I think uh, is the most important book of my life. Everything is downhill from here, uh, that's for sure. It's special because of the role that uh, Yale University has played in my life. Uh, I was married in December of 1984 to a woman I had been courting uh, for too many years, uh, uh, far too many years for me to mention it here. And (coughs) after waiting all those years and uh, getting her consent to marry me, a few few months later she decided to come to Yale University to study graphic design. And I was left bereft and... uh, in Calcutta, in those days, I was an anti-American leftist. Uh, but I knew of a American anarchist named James Scott, uh, whose work I read and admired, and I wrote to him enclosing some of my own work. Um, and he wrote back saying, in the immortal words which he has now come emphatically to regret, Yale has no interest in South Asian studies. <laughs> However, <laughs> since you work on forests and peasants. I shall direct you to the forestry school. And I came uh, there as a lecturer uh, at the same time as my wife came as a student. And Yale had a transformative influence on my life. I think um, the standards I set myself, uh, my understanding of what scholarship in the long haul meant, uh, owed a great deal to the years I spent at Yale, not just by interacting with Jim Scott, Uh, but by other people at Yale and elsewhere, scholars around the United States. But I would like to begin well before Yale, because you know, in a sense that the journey that culminates with the publication of India after Gandhi began 33 years ago. Shivi mentioned a coffee stained form. Now, some of you may not know that Shivi had a degree in history before he became a distinguished anthropologist. And all of you do not know that though I claim to be a historian, and I am announced as a historian, I have never studied history in my life, and my PhD is actually in social anthropology. Now, as uh, those of you who are historians and anthropologists know, and those of you who study uh, conversion know, that the convert very quickly takes on his new role. So Shibi has forgotten most of his anthropology, most of his history, but not all. So he began 20 years ago uh, with a uh, with, a, with a coffee stained uh, form. I am a convert to history, so I am going to begin 33 years ago to show what a good historian I am, and it's also a story of coffee. I was standing outside my room in St. Stephen's College when a man walked by, a young boy walked by, I was a young boy, and he was a young and handsome boy, uh, walked by and said, would you like a cup of coffee? We have, were both freshmen, we had just joined the university, and he took me off to the Delhi University coffee house, where in a sense this, my intellectual journey began because Shivi is in effect my oldest friend and companion, intellectual, personal and otherwise. At that time he was, I, you know him as a professor of anthropology, before that he had done graduate work in history. But when he invited me for coffee he was studying mathematics <laughs> and the person he was inviting was studying economics. I use the word studying in a purely formal sense, Shivi's passion was Hindi films and my passion was the game of cricket. Uh, my first book, The Unquiet Woods was written under his close supervision and guidance. At that stage, he was a civil servant and he had been appointed to a new board of afforestation called the Wastelands Development Board and he was in a sense at the cutting edge of forest policy. And he was one of the three or four people who read my thesis and vastly improved it. At that stage, no one ever knew Shibi would write a thesis. Uh, so, so it happened that two years later, when he wanted to do graduate work in, uh, in, in this country, I gave him the coffee stained form he mentions. But I would like to take the story back a further 13 years and dedicate my talk today to the Delhi University Coffee House, <laughs> where Shivi and me first learned to think and argue and debate. The origins of this book uh, were also have some connection with coffee. Uh, I got a call from a publisher in London saying he would like to have coffee with me. So we met for a cup of coffee in the appropriately named Imperial Hotel in Delhi, a good place for an Indian and an Englishman to meet, to discuss a work of history. uh, Appropriately named. And this publisher said, what are you doing? Uh, He was carrying a copy of a... uh, Oxford historical journal called Past and Present, where I had just published an essay on the social history of cricket. So this man turned to me and said, what are you doing? And I saw that he was carrying this uh, copy of Past and Present, uh, which featured my article. I said, converting that into a book, writing a social history of cricket in India. He said, no, 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 don't do that. Write a history of independent India. So I said, what? He said, uh, isn't it true that Indian history ends in 1947? And that's true. That's a certifiable fact. At the precise moment that the clock struck midnight and the British left and the two, two new nations of India and Pakistan were born, at that precise moment, history ended and anthropology began. That's the definition in the Indian Academy. Indian historians don't look back, don't come forward beyond 1947. That period is left to political scientists and anthropologists. So this historian said, is it true that there is no history of India since 1947? I said, yes. He said, don't you think there's uh, need to write one? Uh, I said, possibly. He said, will you write one? And that's how this book began. Now having accepted uh, the commission, uh, I soon realized what a complicated and difficult task it was. Uh, the, it was, this book was due in 2002, it's come five years late In all this while it travelled in my computer uh, In a folder which was titled, Mythical History Book I never thought I would actually write it uh, But what I've tried to do in this book Which is, I think, the first history of uh, independent India Good, bad or indifferent, or probably all three It tries to do two things It tries to capture The social and cultural diversity of India And tries also to capture The sheer grandeur of the Indian political experiment And I'll talk a little bit about The sheer grandeur of the Indian political experiment And what I've done in this book uh, Contrary, uh, which may surprise some people And disappoint many others uh, Is to consciously and I think successfully Suppress my polemical self As Shivi said In his, uh, uh, while introducing me, he's been a friend and foe to me for 33 years. That's probably true of anyone I've known, including Jim Scott. I mean, he's a friend and a foe. And I have a naturally combative, polemical, argumentative side, uh, which I've suppressed in this book. Uh, Because I felt that the story was so rich, so interesting, so complex, so multi-layered, that it deserved to be told on its own terms. This is a non-ideological history. Now, I know it's heresy to say that in the academy. Everything is supposed to be political and tainted and contaminated. Now, obviously, I haven't uh, removed all my biases in the book. Anyone who reads this book uh, might come to the conclusion that uh, the author somewhat prefers Jawaharlal Nehru to Indira Gandhi, And somewhat prefers Indira Gandhi to the right-wing Bharatiya Janata Party. But that's not the uh, 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 purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to tell a narrative, social and political history of things as they happened at the time. In the writing of this book, I have been guided by the maxim of the Cambridge historian F.W. Maitland, who said, that which is now in the past was once in the future. I've tried to understand an event of 1950, a controversy of 1950 in terms of what was known about that event or that policy or that controversy in 1950. I have suppressed retrospective judgment to the extent I possibly can. I am a human being. I have my views. I am, as Shivi said, a patriotic Indian with strong opinions about where the country should go, should not go. But I've written this as a non-ideological, non-judgmental book. As I said, uh, the aim of the book is to capture, among other things, the sheer grandeur of the Indian political experiment, the building of democracy in a very large, very populous and deeply divided country. I argue that India is an unnatural nation, a nation that was not supposed to exist, that was simply too diverse and divided to exist simply to differentiate it according to language and religion and caste and region and ecology to be constituted as a single political unit. The colonial governor John Strachey, writing in 1880, said, and I quote, While it is conceivable that national sympathies may arise in particular Indian countries, that these sympathies should ever extend to India generally, that men of the Punjab, Bengal and Madras Should ever feel that they belong to one Indian nation Is impossible You might, with as much reason and probability Look forward to a time When a single nation will have taken the place Of the various nations of Europe Now as you can see, strategy was wrong Not only about India, but also about Europe But move forward from 1880 to 1930 The year of Mahatma Gandhi's famous Salt March. Uh, A march that drew into its fold hundreds and thousands of Indians from all castes, both men and women, Hindus and Muslims, North Indians, South Indians. It was a major mass movement. It was a movement that was so dramatic in its impact uh, that uh, before it began, Time magazine wrote a profile of Gandhi, dismissing him as this uh, thin man with spinely eggs whose Who subsists on goat milk and nuts, thinks he is going to take on the British Empire That's what they wrote in early 1930 At the end of 1930, Time magazine had anointed Mahatma Gandhi man of the year This was a profoundly uh, epoch making national uh, event Which I think gave the Indian demand for political independence Massive legitimacy and demonstrated the widespread social support for that demand And led to a series of meetings in London, whereby the terms of negotiating the transfer of power were to be discussed Now, following Gandhi's movement in 1930, Winston Churchill, then an opposition MP Made a series of speeches up and down England, polemicizing against the granting of freedom to Indians As Churchill said, I quote, if the British leave India, an army of white janissaries Officer, if necessary, from Germany will be hired to secure the armed ascendancy of the Hindus. Then he went on, to ab- abandon India to the rule of the Congress Party would be an act of cruel and wicked negligence. India will fall back quite rapidly through the centuries into the barbarism and privations of the Middle Ages. I've just given you a sampling, Strachey and and Churchill. But there were many other such sceptics who believed that this country was far too divided, far too diverse, this territory was far too divided and diverse to constitute itself as a single political entity. So, I call India an unnatural nation. It is an unnatural nation, but it is also an unlikely democracy. Because just as never before had a single political entity been constituted out of so many diverse parts. Never before had the franchise been granted in a country with so many people who were illiterate and poor. If you look at the history of the franchise in this country or in in the UK, it was granted in stages. First, it was only men of property, then men of property and and education. Then, after a long struggle by the working class, all men were allowed to vote and finally... After an even longer struggle by women were women granted the vote. A supposedly advanced Western democracy like Switzerland granted adult women the vote only as late as 1971. Contrast this with what India did. India became independent in 1947, and the Constitution of India, uh, which came into being on 26 January 1950, decided to base the political system on universal adult franchise. The first general elections that were held in January, February 1952 were described as the biggest gamble in history because of what was seen as a far, it was seen as a farcical exercise. It was seen as a one-off event that, okay, you're trying this out, millions of poor, illiterate people are going to vote and they'll never vote again. But they did. The first elections were followed by a second in 1957 and by a third in 1962. And these general national elections were accompanied by countless state and district elections also on the principle of universal adult franchise. Now it was believed and argued by the skeptics that only the will and presence of India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, Nehru, only his will and presence kept India united and kept it democratic. In the early 1960s, Nehru uh, was... Uh, faced with a series of challenges. There was a border conflict with China, resulting in a humiliating defeat at the hands of the Chinese army in October, November 1962. Uh, There was corruption within the Congress party. There was conflict with the communists in Kerala, leading to arguably their unlawful dismissal. And as Nehru came under fire from different quarters, as it appeared, he was no longer the commanding presence he had been through the 1950s. Fears began being expressed once more about the future of a united and democratic India. Here, for example, is Aldous Huxley writing to his brother Julian after a, a trip to India he made in December 1961. Huxley writes, I quote, India is almost infinitely depressing, for there seems to be no solution to its problems in any way that any of us in the West regard as acceptable when Nehru goes, Huxley continues, when Nehru goes, the government will become a military dictatorship, emphatically, will become a military dictatorship, as in so many of the newly independent states, for the army seems to be the only highly organized center of power. Nehru died in May 1964, but he was succeeded by a successor elected democratically, Lal Badu Shastri. And when that man died, suddenly of a heart attack in January 1966, he was succeeded in turn also democratically by another prime minister, this time a woman, Indira Gandhi. And yet the skepticism remained. It was now expressed with regard to India's capacity to feed itself. There were a series of droughts, in India 1964, 65, 66. Uh, these droughts coincided uh, with the rise of the environmental movement in this country and one important strand of the environmental movement in this country at that stage was a strand known as Neo-Malthusianism. And for the Neo-Malthusians, India was the real basket case. I don't know how many of you have read Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, but you, those of you who have, you recall, Uh, The first paragraph of the preface where he says I have understood the population problem intellectually for a very long time But I came to understand it emotionally one hot stinking night in Delhi I'm quoting from memory I mean Ehrlich's words are much more evocative than mine But they go something like this I was driving in a taxi through the streets of the old city The taxi was barely functional the only gear operating was second. Around me were people, people sleeping, people shouting, people arguing, people defecating, people walking, people, 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 people. And Ehrlich was not alone. Uh, The Harvard historian Donald Fleming wrote a classic essay called Roots of the New Conservation Movement in the early 1970s, which is a kind of pioneering work on the... uh, environmental movement of the 1960s, where he says, somewhere, that the slogan of the environmental movement was, no more Indias. Uh, There's a book uh, by the Paddock brothers, published in 1967, called, Famine 1975, exclamation mark, which predicted mass famine with India leading the way. And uh, this skepticism, uh, I should say, uh, in all fairness, was not restricted to Americans. In the first weeks of 1967, the correspondent of the London Times in New Delhi, who was a New Zealander called Neville Maxwell, wrote a series of articles on in what he called India's disintegrating democracy. As Maxwell saw it, I quote, Famine is threatening. The administration is strained and universally corrupt. The government has lost confidence in itself. There is an emotional readiness. For the rejection of parliamentary democracy, the crisis is upon India. The great experiment of developing India within a democratic framework has failed. Indians will soon vote in the fourth and surely last general elections. This was written on the eve of the 67 elections. Uh, Well, we've had, I think, 11 elections since. Now, it's easy for a historian with the privilege of hindsight to quote all these predictions and make fun of them. Uh, in fairness, I should add that some, much of this scepticism was uh, shared by some Indians. And There were many Indians who opposed the granting of universal adult franchise by Jawaharlal Nehru and the Congress Party in 1952. There were other Indians who saw in every secessionist movement, such as the Kashmiri struggle, the Naga struggle, the imminent breakup of India into many, many different parts. And you can see the roots of this uh, scepticism, and you can understand it sympathetically, because as I said, India is and was an unnatural nation And an unlikely democracy And how does one tell the story of this unnatural nation and unlikely democracy I've tried in this book to tell the story uh, Using two principal methods or strategies The first is that I've written the history of independent India As a story of social conflicts Conflicts around caste, class, language, region and religion back in the early 90s when i was more of an anthropologist and less of a historian i was living in new delhi uh, and i used to go to work through a road uh, which is really signals the exercise of state power you know it's the grand avenue which is known as kings way which culminated in the viceregal lodge it's now renamed rajpath which means effectively uh, the road of state and along it's the, it's the road along uh, along which uh, the spectacular annual Republic Day Parade is held, where India uh, demonstrates not only its unity in diversity, their floats of the different, 28 different states of the Union, but also, uh, as befitting a modern nation state, uh, you know, the newest arms are on display, you know, the fancy howitzers, rifles, and the overhead you'll have, uh, you know, the mirage planes of the Indian Air Force, uh, you know, screaming and shouting and so on. And along this road, uh, for most of the year, there used to be tents, the tents were not allowed for the month before Republic Day, but otherwise there were these tents of protesters, carrying different placards. So, one tent might have a placard saying, we are from this steel plant and we have been retrenched, we demand our jobs back. You go a little further down, there will be a tent saying, we speak the language Konkani and we demand that Konkani be included in the 8th schedule of the Indian constitution, which allows the state to subsidize the teaching and publishing of their language. There'd be a third tent in which there'd be tribals from the Narmada Valley threatened with displacement by a large dam, saying that this dam should not be built. And there were these tents uh, that were uh, always there, but the residents changed and the placards also changed. So the next week, instead of the industrial workers protesting retrenchment, you might have Tibetan refugees demanding citizenship rights. Uh, Instead of the tent which had tribals from Madhya Pradesh threatened with inundation by the Sardasarava Dam, you might have farmers from Gujarat demanding that the dam be built expeditiously because it was going to provide them water for their fields. So it was a kind of kaleidoscope of the conflicts uh, uh, that characterized modern India. And it was an expression uh, of those uh, at the receiving end of the conflicts uh, made at the very heart of state power unfortunately uh, because the government felt that it would embarrass foreign visitors, uh, those tents were dismantled. they no longer exist there. But I used to walk down uh, that road in the early 1990s to my way, on my way to work, and as I said, I was more of an anthropologist then, and i one day I thought to myself, wouldn't it be a wonderful idea to walk up and down this road for three hundred and sixty five days and do a kind of ethnography of who's here, why they've come what their uh, you know what their uh, uh, Complaining about what they think they'll get from the government in New Delhi And (coughs) much later when I came to write this book I've done more or less the same thing Except that I followed the method of the historian I have not studied social conflicts at a single point in time Or in a single venue I've studied them across India as they've unfolded over six decades The principal conflicts in this book that I analyzed Are over caste, class, language, region and religion And to add to these five, shall we say, major categories of uh, division and, uh, uh, you know, uh, axes of uh, antagonism, there are conflicts over territory between India and Pakistan, India and China, India and Nepal. So that's one major strategy that I followed in this book. This book is, among other things, a story of the diversity of social conflicts in India, how they are expressed, uh, who expresses them. How they are intensified, how they are resolved or not resolved And the other and complementary way of telling the story of modern India or independent India Is through the public lives of the key individuals who have articulated or moderated these conflicts So this book is partly a social history of conflict And it's partly a historical biography uh, or multiple biographies of individuals who have moderated or uh, crystallized these conflicts, and there are three kinds of biographical analysis in this book, the first kind of figure who is studied is the great all India figure, Uh, and probably five names are paramount in the history of independent India, there is Jawaharlal Nehru, Prime Minister uh, from 1947 to 1964, there is his great... uh, Uh, collaborator and occasional adversary Vallabhai Patel, who was home minister and deputy prime minister. Uh, There is the other crucial member of the first cabinet of independent India, the Dalit leader B.R. Ambedkar, who drafted the Indian constitution. So those are the three founding figures who are crucial. And to them one must add, later on, Indira Gandhi, who was prime minister of India almost as long as Nehru. And Indira Gandhi's great adversary, the socialist, social worker and social activist, Prakash Narayan, who led, led along and uh, struggled against Indira's rule. So there's, there's these five or six great all India figures who play an important part in my story. But move a level below, from the level of uh, the centre to the level of the states or the provinces. Also in this book you'll find the interesting, intriguing provincial leaders of India. And provincial is a particularly Indian term and it's an unfortunate and uh, uh, undeserved term. These are people whose province was the size of France or Germany. If you think of a man like E.M.S. Nambudripad, E.M.S. Nambudripad was chief minister of the first elected communist government anywhere in the world. In 1957, he became chief minister of Kerala. He was chief minister again in 67, again in 1977. He, uh, He lived a very long life. He died only in the early 1990s. And for five or six decades he had a profound influence on 40 million malayalis the policies he inaugurated the controversies uh, he sparked uh, 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 as his party you know uh, took forward altered the ways in which land was held and distributed the ways in which education was conveyed through schools the ways in which health services were provided the ways in which the culture and art of kerala was understood and represented in other words, he had, a, he had as great an influence uh, on Kerala as, shall we say, Charles de Gaulle had on post-war France. And Pad was only one of these incredibly interesting provincial figures. And because we think of them as provincial in India, because of the sheer size of India, we haven't paid them adequate attention. There is not a single biography of any of the major provincial figures who uh, who are here in this book. And they're all as interesting as Nambudripath. There's C.N. Anadurai, whom uh, Bani Bech knows about, who is the great uh, Tamil orator and the leader of the first successful regional party in India, the Dravid the Kayagam. There is a man, uh, Sheikh Abdullah, uh, whose life illuminates the history of Kashmir and hence the history of India and Pakistan as well at every point in the 50 years of the Kashmir dispute. He leads a popular movement against the feudal Maharaja of uh, Kashmir uh, The state is merged with the Indian Union, he becomes Chief Minister of Kashmir Then he seeks uh, close relations with Pakistan Then he thinks of creating Kashmir as an independent Switzerland of the East And the Indian government puts him in jail, he is jailed for 12 years Then he comes out, then he goes to jail again Then he comes out yet again, then he becomes Chief Minister again Then an insurgency starts and so on and so forth You cannot understand the history of Kashmir, indeed, which means really effectively the history of India and Pakistan, because of the fact that India and Pakistan have fought four wars over Kashmir, without Sheikh Abdullah. Move from the western Himalaya to the eastern extremity, where, uh, unknown to many Indians, this content uh, has an even longer history. The Nagas of eastern India have been, many of the Nagas, have been as unreconciled to the Indian Union as many of the Kashmiris. Uh, and it goes back again to 1947, the formation of the Naga National Council under the leadership of, again, a most interesting, unusual leader called Angami Zapu Fizo, who to begin with was uh, had a kind of succession of serial failures. You know, uh, He uh, suffered a horrible paralytic attack as a young man and had a twisted face uh, as a result. Uh, he started a motor parts business that failed he started insurance business that failed then he got into politics except it was on the wrong side he joined the japanese against the british so that also failed after the war he came overground uh, made his peace with the british started the naga national council uh, determined not uh, uh, determined that the nagas would not be reconciled to the indian union st- stood out for complete independence was there was a civil war that broke out in the Naga territories between Fizo's forces and the Indian army. At some stage, uh, things got too hot. Fizo fled across uh, the border into what was then East Pakistan what is uh, and uh, what is now Bangladesh, spent 8 or 9 years there directing, uh, you know, uh, the insurgency uh, uh, through remote control, finally decided that he needed Western help and left Dhaka. Traveling on a forged El Salvadorian passport and reached London, where he befriended a man called David Astor, who was then the very influential editor of the Observer newspaper, and persuaded Astor that the Nagas were to the Indian Union as the Jews were to the Nazis. I mean, Astor had played a heroic role in awakening. Uh, the conscience of the western world to the holocaust uh, And that carried on his campaign from London for 20-30 years And deeply embarrassed the Indian government So there's this whole panoply of fascinating provincial figures Whose province as I said uh, was a country unto itself And uh, whose uh, wh- uh, whose policies and actions influenced for good and for ill The lives of 30, 40, 50 million Indians So in this book you'll find people like E.M.S. Nambudripad Sheikh Abdullah, Angami Zapo Fizo, CN Anna Durai, and others. And thirdly, the third level of biographical analysis is of what I call the intriguing minor figures of modern Indian history. And again, I don't have time to to really take you through uh, many of them, but I'll give you a couple of illustrations. One is a man called Potti Sridamulu. Uh, he was. Uh, Like, you know, he was one of hundreds of thousands of Gandhian social workers. He'd been in the freedom struggle, he'd gone to jail, he came out of jail, he started an ashram. After independence, he decided to take up the cause of the Andhra-speaking people of the Madras presidency and join their movement for a separate state of Telugu speakers. Now, this demand was resisted by the central government because India had just been divided on the basis of religion in pakistan had been created to carve out a muslim homeland and there was a fear that if the demand to uh, create a telugu speaking state was granted this would lead to a kind of domino effect and the marathis and the kanadigas and the odias would have owned their own states and india would balkanize further al Ramulu was a determined man he went on fast and when he was six weeks into his fast Jawaharlal Nehru, Prime Minister of India, wrote a letter to Raja Rajagopalachari, who was Chief Minister of Madras Province, out of which the Telugu speakers wanted a part. Nehru writes to Rajagopalachari saying, "I am told there is some kind of fast going on in the Andhra country. I propose to do nothing about it." Well, a week later, C. Ramulu died, and all hell broke loose. There was massive protest all across the Andhra country. Uh, train stations were torched. Uh, bus stations were set ablaze, government offices were attacked and finally Nehru had to yield and the state of Andhra Pradesh was created. As soon as the state of Andhra Pradesh was created, as he had feared, the Kanadigas got together and said, we want our own state, the Marathis got together and said, we want our own state and they were massive, in a, in a sense, the linguistic states movement uh, was probably the most, uh, you know, in terms of the numbers of people who participated was probably the most, a popular social movement in independent India. So all these different linguistic groups started clamoring for their own political space. Uh, finally, a state's reorganization commission was uh, created in 1956, which mandated the redrawing of India on linguistic lines. And so I say in my book, half-facetiously, that uh, if Jawaharlal Nehru was the maker of modern India, Patti sriramulu was its marketer, the man who drew the map of modern India. So, there are these intriguing minor figures, uh, you know, they are opposition leaders, radicals, sometimes civil servants. One of the heroes of my book is the man who designed the first elections, Sukumar Sen. As I said, uh, the Indian constitution was drafted in, uh, uh, was formal form, formalized uh, in January 1950, and Nehru, being a democrat and an impatient democrat, wanted elections immediately. So, he told Sukumar Sen, who was chief election commissioner, that he wanted elections in six months. Well, Sukumar Sen did some calculations and his calculations were more precise than Nehru's because Sukumar Sen had a gold medal in mathematics from Imperial College London. So, he worked out the mechanics, Um, 300 million people, electorate of 180 million, um, 120 million can't read and write, uh, how many... uh, Uh, millions uh, of uh, ballot boxes do you need, Uh, how how many reams of uh, paper, tons of paper for, you know, uh, as an electoral register, how do you space out the different uh, booths, Uh, how do you design symbols for illiterate people, you know, the idea of symbols was uh, uh, the the inspiration of Sukumar Sen, because since most Indians couldn't read, they could vote for an elephant or a hand or uh, whatever uh, their party was identified with. So, he took 18 months to get the election into place. But it was uh, a supremely successful election and laid the groundwork for all later elections. And I think uh, this is a thing Indians especially like to boast about their elections. Uh, After Florida in 2000, I think we are entitled to claim that Indian elections since 1952 have generally been more reliable, free and fair than elections in supposedly more advanced countries in the world. But we forget about Sukumar Sen, who in a sense is... uh, was the real architect and designer of the highly complex electoral machinery that sustains democratic India. So he is one of the minor figures who is there uh, in my book. So that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to tell uh, the story of modern India uh, through uh, an analysis of the unfolding of social conflicts and through biographical portraits of individuals who represented, articulated, moderated, intensified these conflicts in different kinds of ways. Every book, every research project, as many of you in this room know, is a process of learning and a process of unlearning. You learn some new things, uh, you forget some old things. What have I learned while writing this book? I'm going to end by sharing... uh, what are probably the three or four principal lessons that have come to me in the many years I've been working on this book. The first lesson uh, that Shivi mentioned uh, is that uh, the real success of independent India lies in the domain of politics, not economics. We are told now that uh, uh, that India is an emerging superpower and it's true that over the last few years, We've had very impressive growth growth rates, uh, uh, both uh, uh, of gross national product and especially in certain sectors such as information technology. But I think the jury is out on our economic success. What we should be celebrating, modestly perhaps, is the fact that against the odds, India still survives somewhat as a united and democratic entity. Now there are questions to be asked about how united and how democratic. I argue in my book... uh, invoking an immortal line of the Hindi comic actor, Johnny Walker, that India is a 50-50 democracy, 50-50. It depends on where you look. If you look at free and fair elections, we are a democracy. If you look at the fact that intellectuals can say what they want, we are a democracy. On the other hand, if you look at uh, transparency, corruption, accountability, uh, everyday violence, we are not a democracy. So we are a 50-50 democracy, and I argue 80% united. But even the fact that we are 80% united and 50% democratic is a victory of sorts. It was not to be expected in this unnatural nation and this unlikely democracy. So, I argue that the real success lies in the domain of politics. It's a qualified success. It's a moderate success. uh, But if at all uh, there is a success, it's not in the domain of economics, but in the domain of politics. The second lesson that I have garnered while writing this book uh, is that while a democracy may be run in mid-career by mediocrities, it must be founded by visionaries. If no new nation was born in more difficult circumstances, such as India, no new nation was blessed with such a concatenation of greatness either. You know, V.S. Naipaul, who is a wonderfully interesting and illuminating writer with whom I usually don't agree. Uh, one said in a sort of casual interview, he said Indians don't realize how lucky they were that in the same century, Tagore, Gandhi, and Nehru were born working together. He said you can't find such a concatenation of vision and intelligence and integrity and greatness among the political leadership of any other country. If you go to, you know, France, you'll have to start with uh, a hero of the French Revolution, move on to Voltaire, and then maybe come to De Gaulle. If you look at America, you'll have to go. Uh, through the 18th century from to, to Jefferson to maybe Lincoln in the 19th century and then to FDR in the 20th century and so on and so forth Now I think that's a very interesting and perceptive comment except that those, to those three Tagore, Gandhi and Nehru I would add a fourth B.R. Ambedkar Also a contemporary and I would add some others too People like Patel, Rajagopalachari, Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay, and many many others So India was fortunate <coughs> In being blessed with a remarkable first generation Of founding fathers and mothers Now Indians complain about Politicians now and with good reason In fact, it's a surprise Some reviewers of this book have commented uh, That this is a salute Among other things, this book is a salute To that discredited class, the Indian politician It is, but not the Indian politician of today The Indian politician who nurtured and built The foundations of a united and democratic India But in, uh, uh, you know, uh, considering the sorry state of Indian political leadership today, Indians should probably look comparatively and they might take comfort in the progress of democracies in the rest of the world. So, for example, I conclude that the distance between Jawaharlal Nehru and Sonia Gandhi, who heads this Congress party now, or between B.R. Ambedkar and a Dalit leader today, the distance, great though it undeniably is, is no more and no less than the distance say between thomas jefferson and george w bush <laughs> so that's lesson number 2 that have visionaries to found your democracy then they can be led and because i say somewhere in this book that the sapling founded uh, the sapling planted by nehru patel ambedkar and many many others was so robust Uh, That it could not be uprooted by later generations They could lop off a branch here, you know, make an incision here, distort uh, something there But uh, it it couldn't really be undermined or hasn't been yet And likewise perhaps with this country So That's lesson number two Lesson number three is that a historian should not stray into the field of prophecy Now, uh, looking at, I've had great fun in this book quoting all these guys who went wrong and historians are often asked, uh, particularly in a country like India, to, because Indians are very impatient about the past. I mean, they want to know now about the future. And uh, it would be a profitable, profitable change of profession for me, particularly in India, if I was to become an astrologer. Uh, but I rather fear that all my predictions will come wrong. Um, and particularly in the context of writing this book, if I see how, I mean, Churchill is, it's easy to box Churchill, because Churchill was always wrong about India. But somebody like Aldous Huxley, who was deeply sympathetic to Indian aspirations, or Indian writers themselves, who were so profoundly wrong about X and Y and Z. Um, what it tells me is that uh, a, the historian should view with proper skepticism the current wave of prophecies, which are not about India descending into anarchy and, uh, 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 <clears throat> and famine, but about India's imminent rise to greatness, India's arrival as the Asian superpower of this century. I believe that these predictions are likely to be falsified too. Um, uh, That there are some very real challenges facing India today despite the rising economic growth and these challenges include religious extremism on the right, revolutionary Marxism on the left, the corruption and corrosion of the political centre and the growing divide between rich and poor. And it seems to be that contrary to what was predicted in the past, India was not going down into the tube. India was not going down the tube then and India is not going to take its place on the high table now. And if I was to offer a prediction, it would be this. India will merely muddle along in the middle as it has always done. Professor T. N. Srinivasan will probably give the India of the 1970s a B minus. I think he will give the India of the 2020s a B or a B plus at best. It will muddle along in the middle as it has always done. That's the third lesson. The fourth and final lesson uh, with which I'll conclude uh, is that while India may sometimes be the most exasperating country in the world, it is always the most interesting country in the world. And I'm just going to give you two pieces of evidence uh, to demonstrate this, and then I'll stop. The first piece of evidence is visual. The rupee note, Mohandas K. Gandhi on one side, on the other side, uh, this is a 500 rupee note, so it has the salt March. Uh, You know, other rupee notes have the houses of parliament or some other symbol of Indian nationalism or Indian unity And the, the denomination is written in Hindi and in English, the two official languages, in big and bold in the middle And on the side, in 15 other languages, indeed in 15 other scripts so you have 17 different languages, cultures, cuisines, ecologies, ways of dress, philosophies, mentalities, all nestling comfortably together. Now, I talked about prophecies. And I said that when Potisi Srimadri Ramulu went on fast, <coughs> excuse me, uh, it was feared that India would be divided on the basis of language. In the same year that the States Reorganization Commission of India mandated the redrawing of the map on linguistic lines. The year was 1956. In the same year, the Prime Minister of Ceylon, as Sri Lanka was then known, SWRD Bandar piloted the Sinala Only Language Act through the Sinhalese Parliament, which imposed Sinala on the Tamil speakers of the north of the island. Now, the Tamil speakers protested, and if you, look, you read the parliamentary transcripts, they're fascinating, because they are all these eloquent speeches which uh, Bani Bates has read about You know, the death of our great and glorious tongue at the hands of the Sinala imperialist. But in the midst of all this, there was a small intervention by a left-wing Sinala MP called Conville De Silva, who said, who warned Bandar Naike, who said, one language, two nations, two languages, one nation. And I think India, if Hindi had been imposed on the whole of India, as some Hindi Zarets wanted, would have been one language, 22 nations. So this is a visual demonstration of the fact that India is simply the most interesting country in the world. Uh, and I'll end with an anecdotal uh, example of this. Uh, <coughs> about three years ago, when I was about two-thirds of the way to writing this book, I went. I invited you to give a talk in Patiala, which is in the Punjab. And I had, after the riots of 1984, in which 3,006 were butchered in a state-sponsored pogrom, I had vowed to myself that uh, I would go and visit the Golden Temple as a kind of, you know, whatever, uh, how, do, how do how do I put it, as a kind of atonement, personal atonement for what my fellow Hindus had done. And it took me 20 years to redeem that vow, but I went. So I was driving from Patiala to the Golden Temple, Patiala to Amritsar, which is across the state of uh, uh, Punjab. I mean, Punjab is a small state, it's like Connecticut. It's one of the smaller states of the Union. Uh, so it took me just, uh, just, just a day. And there were kind of um, uh, two uh, things I saw, which kind of, Uh, in the different ways, demonstrate my thesis that India is the most interesting country in the world. The first was shortly after I left Patiala. And the car I had rented was halted by a railway crossing, what we call a level crossing. I think in America, there's some other term for it. You know, the barrier was put up, the train was going. It was a freight train, or what we call a goods train. And goods, freight trains in India are very long and very slow. They have many, many bogies. So you sit there a long time, and you watch them go, you know, cut, 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 And while you're watching them go, you see what's written on them. And it says, again, in these two languages only, it says, Bharatiya Rail, Indian Railways. Then it has a number, the bogie number. And then it has uh, an abbreviation which denotes which branch of the railways it is from. So SR for Southern Railway, NR for Northern Railway, SCR for South Central Railway, NER for North Eastern Railway. And I was watching this good strain go by. And it had about 60 or 70 bogies, as all these trains do. And to my fascination, I looked, I was looking at the numbers and, and the symbols. And there was SR2341, next to NR1398, then next to SCR 4946, and so on. These bogies are supposed to belong to each individual regional branch of the railways. But somewhere in their varied journeys, they'd all got messed up. <laughs> that was the first demonstration of what a fascinating country I live in. Uh, Well, anyway, I went a little further on on the drive, and I started dozing, and then I got up, and um, I looked around, and uh, I saw we were passing through a town, and the signs proclaimed that it was a town called Khanna. Now, Khanna is a a very important surname in the Punjab. Uh, It comes from this village, Khanna, and it's a a mandi, it's a grain market, it's an important grain market in the Punjab, which, as you know, is uh, the wheat and rice bowl of India. So I started looking around, you know. It's, it's an important place, it's, it's an important trade market. And then I saw, looking at the signs of the shops and the houses, I saw a sign which said, Indian Bank, Khanna branch, and below that, HO, which is the head office, Rajaji Saleh Chennai. Now, this needs some explanation, uh, particularly for the non-Indians here. Rajaji was a great uh, Tamil politician, an austere, dhoti-clad, non-smoking, vegetarian Gandhian, a bank which had its headquarters in Madras, run by Tamils, named after this Gandhian, austere, uh, vegetarian, had opened a branch in the deepest Punjab, which was servicing a whiskey-guzzling, chicken-eating Sikh farmer. That's where he was banking his proceeds. (laughs) Now, it was unbelievable, because... My book starts with John, John Strachey saying that the Punjab and Madras can never be part of the same country. And here was the Indian Bank telling me that the Punjab and the Madras, and in the stereotypes that people, the uh, you know, the Indian cultural imagination, there are no two kinds of Indians who are more opposed than the Tamil Brahmin and the Sardarji. <laughs> on, on both sides, you know, for the Sardarji, the Tamil Brahmin is a uh, weak, effete, you know. Vegetarian, you know, kind of namby-pamby, <laughs> God knows what. And for the Tamil, uh, as uh, the Tamils in this room know, I mean, the Sardarji is that dirty smelling North Indian fellow, meat-eating North Indian fellow. Now, I think, st- So, but this bank told you India was one. And it existed despite these diversities and these contradictions. And that's the last lesson uh, uh, I learned in, in writing this book. That if I was a citizen, I would prefer probably Sweden and Norway and Denmark to live in. But as a historian, I'm truly blessed to practice my trade in India. Thank you very much. Mr. Gua is an Indian social, environmental, and cricket historian. He is also a columnist for the newspapers The Hindu and The Telegraph and the news magazine Outlook. For more information on the Macmillan Center, please visit yale.edu slash macmillan. This netcast was recorded on September 27, 2007.